Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hi, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360. The program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, and America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is being felt around the world. For developed and emerging economies, the International Monetary Fund estimates that national output contracted by nearly 6% in 2020, and the speed at which economies are recovering is vastly different from region to region. The fallout has spared no nation, and the nations of the Americas are no exception. In fact, 62% of the IMF's lending in response to the pandemic has gone to 21 countries in Latin America, where the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been compounded by natural disasters and lack of transparency. To discuss the economic fallout in the Americas and the role of the International Monetary Fund in attempts at recovery, our roundtable welcomes a very special guest from the IMF. We'll introduce you to him in just a moment, but first, let's welcome back our regulars. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Brazil Institute Director Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hi, John. Duncan Wood, the former director of the Center's Mexico Institute and now uh, Vice President for New Initiatives at the Wilson Center. Hey, John. And Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan, who will be moderating our interview and introducing you to our special guest. Benjamin, over to you. Thanks, John. I want to welcome our special guest today, Alejandro Werner. He is the director of the Western Hemisphere Department at the International Monetary Fund. Previously, he served as the Undersecretary of Finance and Public Credit of Mexico. He is co-author of a recent report from the IMF on the prospects for economic recovery in Latin America post-pandemic. Alejandro, we're so glad you could join us. Thank you, Benjamin, for the invitation, and thanks, everybody, for inviting me here. Alejandro, I was pleasantly surprised by the upbeat tone of, of much of this report. Latin America's economies, of course, were the hardest hit in the world throughout this pandemic, not only in, in public health terms, of course, but in labor markets and in increases in poverty. We heard a lot about the region's pre-existing conditions coming into 2020. That included high debt, high deficits, and we thought there were limited funds available for fiscal stimulus and social spending. We thought investors might flee, given the conditions that I just described. We thought remittances might dry up. We knew tourism would. Yet the IMF now sees signs of what you called a bounce back, at least in the biggest economies, and those include Argentina, Brazil, Peru. Exports have already recovered. Industrial production and retail sales all seem healthy. My question is, how did that happen? And is it sustainable? Yeah, Benjamin, I mean, I think we're seeing that all around the world. I mean, basically starting in Q3 of 2020, the economies, I mean, started to reopen. Secondly, we, we started to learn how to live and operate within the social distancing uh, measures that we had to implement to limit contagion. And in that way, economies have been able to bounce back in the second half of last year. In the first quarter of this year, we will fight what our chief economists call the race between the vaccine and the virus. But our forecast basically assumes that the vaccine beats the virus. And by the second half of this year, we will be seeing an environment in which economies are able 
to continue their reopening. And actually, on the back of significant stimulus, both uh, monetary and fiscal in advanced economies and in emerging markets, we will see a very strong expansion in the second quarter of this year that will lead for economies in Latin America to exhibit an average growth rate of 4.1%. And let me put this in context. Last year, our expectations is that the economies in Latin America would have contracted by 7.4%. So we're not even able to recover what we lost uh, last year. And an important thing to say is that even looking forward, to recover the 2019 level of per capita GDP, it might take up to anywhere between 2024 and 2025 for many Latin American economies. So it is very challenging, but the good news is that we expect these economies to, to show positive growth and recovery in 2021. Perhaps I was overly optimistic in my description of the report, but certainly moving in the right direction and, and taking advantage of pent-up demand and, and buoyed exports. Duncan Wood. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Alejandro, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, what's been a controversial issue in a number of countries uh, throughout the region, and that is um, whether or not to uh, to engage in massive stimulus spending. You know, in the case of Mexico, of course, we saw uh, that the government there decided not to uh, pump money into the economy. Um, when we look at the figures that you've put out in your report, it seems as though certainly for 2021, that may not be so disastrous because Mexico is looking at uh, a growth rate of uh, 4.3% in 2021, although that will fall off in 2022. Um, how does the IMF feel about uh, stimulus spending at this point in time? It's been such an interesting issue over the years, you know, um, generally pushing towards uh, austerity, um, cutting back on fiscal spending. But, you know, during a crisis like this, I've heard many voices from the IMF and from the international financial community in general saying governments need to do more. How does it look now that we're at this stage of the pandemic? No, I, I think, look, I mean, uh, any economist knows that uh, the intention of economic policy should be, especially during the business cycle, to smooth the business cycle, to try to reduce the huge swings, both downwards and upwards, that our economies uh, experience. COVID-19 was a major negative shock to activity and to livelihoods. So in that sense, the logic for policy support was fully there. I mean, if we tell economies to save for a rainy day, if we tell economies to build buffers, then how, how much more rain do you want to have than the one we had in 2019? So in that sense, I mean, designing the right calibration and the right programs to channel this support was very important. But I think the logic for support was there. It was very, very clear. And I think most countries uh, followed it. Now that we move to 2021, the economies are recovering. What should we do in terms of continuing stimulus, removing it fully, etc.? And there is this tension between hearing the concerns of financial markets in which capacity to borrow might start being limited by some of these countries and you might risk facing, let's say, some kind of volatility in financial markets versus the continuing needs of the population and the economies. Economies are still significantly below potential and the recovery is biased against those parts of the labor market that are most vulnerable. The, the, those workers that have been gaining uh, uh, lower wages, women, youth. 
So in that sense, there's still a, a significant logic, first to support those that continue to be significantly affected, uh, even more so given the second wave of the pandemic. And secondly, there is a macroeconomic logic to continue to support the recovery. All of this within the context of what countries can do, given the financial situation. We realized in 2020 that there was more fiscal space than what we thought, especially because advanced economies, central banks, significantly expanded liquidity and were going back to a world of low interest rates for a very long time. So that makes a higher level of debt more sustainable than before. But obviously, we, we should not overuse this so that we don't fall into the problems of the past. But definitely, this is the time in which countries have to design the right size and the right channels to provide resources to the population, both households and firms, and also to send a very strong signal to international capital markets of how you're going to go back to sustainability once COVID is under control. I think the more you can strengthen your medium-term fiscal anchor, the larger your fiscal space you have now to support your population. So if you can do, do both of these things today, you can actually implement a very a, a powerful fiscal policy to support the economy now and eventually start contracting in the future once the economy is back to normal. Cindy. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Alejandro. Um, my question has to do with the politics of the austerity measures that the IMF is proposing, including reducing the size of the state, increasing the value-added tax, at a time when um, even your report points out that 16 million people around the region have been thrown into poverty, a figure that's actually a lot lower than some of the other estimates that have come out of, say, Paul and elsewhere. How politically viable is it to tell governments that they have to keep spending um, constrained, reduce the size of the state, get more through the tax system? I mean, actually, we, we are not advising that currently, as I said before, I mean, given, I mean, this is a very different kind of shock than your traditional balance of payment crisis in Latin America. Traditionally, and, and this uh, will be a caricature because every crisis has its particularities, but many countries end up falling into a crisis because either the public sector or the private sector ended up overspending before the crisis. The public sector through debt, the private sector through private sector debt or debt of the financial system that they did lend to uh, uh, households and firms domestically. So to correct from the imbalances generated by the crisis, you do need to significantly reduce spending. If not, the economy cannot go back to equilibrium and the economy, these economies will not be able to repay their debts that they have uh, uh, accumulated. However, during the pandemic, what you had is you had to close down parts of your economy to avoid contagion. And therefore, you artificially generated a recession. And that's why knowing that in the future, you're going to reopen. So in the, in the future, if the economy goes back to normal, you will be able to repay some debts that you acquired today, that you acquired, let's call it, during your sick leave. So you stay at home, you have a, a non-pay sick leave, and what we're saying is the government has to go to pay sick leave. And then eventually the government will have to maybe increase some taxes, 
do some changes so that it can repay or at least pay the interest on the debt that incurred to pay the sickly. That's what we're proposing now. So in those cases in which we feel in the future there will be need to either increase taxes or do some tax reform is basically in the future. So, for example, if you look at our program with Ecuador, all of those reforms that are income generating or public finance correctors should come in the future once the economy is clearly on the recovery phase out of COVID. And in that sense, we have been also, I wouldn't say criticized, but people are concerned that current IMF programs are being designed in a way in we are front-loading the resources because the economy, these economies need significant amount of financing, and especially those that don't have access to international capital markets. That's what why they're coming to us, like in the case of, of, of Ecuador, and backloading the reforms because this is not the time to implement those reforms. And then people say, well, maybe the countries will not have the incentives to implement the reforms given that you already give them the money. We don't think that countries do the reforms because we drive them to do them by financing them. We think that countries design their reforms because they know it is good to maintain a healthy financial system, healthy public finances in, in the future. But I mean, some people are concerned that a little bit the traditional design in which you have financing and reforms going together, once we have separated and we have uh, provided the financing up front and the reforms should be coming in the future, generate more financial risks to the fund than before. But obviously, going through the deepest economic and humanitarian crisis that we have seen in maybe half a century, taking larger risks is what the IMF balance sheet is here for. Christopher Sands. Um, thank you, Ben. Uh, Dr. Werner, I, I'm curious, this is a crisis or this economic crisis is one that affects the donor countries to the IMF as well as, as everyone else. In terms of uh, protectionism in some countries, we certainly saw that in the United States under the previous administration. Countries that are spending a lot to stimu as stimulus at home, but uh, may then shortchange their funding for the IMF. Where do you think the role for countries like Canada that are on the donor side has to be in order for the, us to get through this crisis? Thank you very much for mentioning Canada, because it makes my life very easy. I mean, Canada has been a, a great supporter of multilateralism throughout these last years, and I think uh, traditionally, so in that sense, Canada is a country that I think lives by the mantra that you're saying. I mean, whatever they're doing at home, they want to do as much as they can to extend those policies throughout the world. I mean, now, I mean, in the IMF, given that the Canadian executive director also represents many countries in the Caribbean, I mean, Canada has been significantly pushing for the agenda to support small states. Uh, traditionally, also, I mean, Canada has been extremely involved in trying to forge international agreements uh, to push all the policies associated with climate change, etc. But you're totally right. I mean, in a way, if you look at the amount of stimulus that advanced economies have been subject to, and you look at the amount of stimulus that emerging markets have been subject to, you see a ratio that is very, very large, basically telling you that emerging markets are not being supported by the amount of policy stimulus that they would need. And for that, you would need a stronger and more powerful balance sheets in the development institutions, but you also need to change attitudes on both sides because 
we can discuss here whether the IMF should be bigger or not. But what is true is also we are not having the demand for financing that the current situation should make you think that we should be having today. So in a way, also, I think we need to find a solution a little bit to this gridlock. I mean, some people call it stigma to come to the IMF. Uh, uh, some people also say that, I mean, maybe some countries are just uh, uh, rather waiting to try to patch together a financing scheme just to muddle through next year, even if they could have a financing package that is twice as large if they were willing to put a policy program with important policy commitments for the future, but politically it's very costly. So I'm not saying that the IMF is doing everything right on the countries, but I think there are issues that we we need to solve on both sides so that we can have a, a more powerful response even before thinking of increasing the size of, the, of these institutions. Our managing director has said that we have a $1 trillion balance sheet to support our shareholders. We have committed around a quarter of that. During the pandemic, we had a given around $110 billion of new financing, plus what we had given before. That makes the quarter of a trillion dollars that we have committed. But we still have a very large uh, war chest that I think we should try to find a way on how to deploy an important share of that because the emerging markets and the low-income countries need it. Well, let's go from Canada to the other end of the spectrum because Canada is too easy. I think you laid out very clearly the philosophy around uh, financing versus reform and the sequence of those Mm -hmm. and the need to deal with this massive social and humanitarian uh, situation that's facing uh, the entire region, really the globe, but certainly the Americas. Can you think of instances or cases or are there circumstances where you would see a greater need to connect reforms with that financing, uh, circumstances where countries were already in bad shape because of governance issues, where this additional financing could be used as uh, leverage to speed up reform? You're totally right. I mean, I think in, in my previous answer, I was starting by the assumption, let's say, that we had an, a hypothetical country that was r- doing relatively fine without major imbalances, and then they get hit by COVID. And then you have this description of front-loaded uh, financing, back-loaded some reforms that, to me, uh, make sense. However, I mean, you also have many countries that were already showing signs of financial vulnerabilities, economic problems, and they were barely uh, scratching by. Then COVID comes, and then you have to mix this arrangement in which you do front-loaded financing and maybe back-loaded reforms, but also you have to do some adjustment to accommodate the imbalances that you had before and some correction for, let's say, the structural issues that were already driving these countries into a very problematic situation. Let's, uh, uh, I mean, let's just put the case of Ecuador in the table. I mean, Ecuador was a country that was already suffering from the decline in the price of oil in 2014-2015. And it was adjusting, I mean, gradually in a very, let's say, complicated way to that shock. Then they are maybe the first country in Latin America being severely hit by COVID in March, April. And then comes the sharp decline in the price of oil in April. 
immediately after that happened, the Minister of Finance of Ecuador came out and said, I'm going to restructure my debt and I will go for a new program with the IMF in the future. So Ecuador was already trying to contain a situation in which the public sector grew a lot on the back of the increase in the price of oil. They were trying to reshape their economy so that their economy would be consistent and sustainable with the price of oil of around $50 per barrel instead of around 100 And on top of that, they get COVID. So yes, I mean, in the case of Ecuador, you need to, to rejig it a little bit my logic of only backloaded reforms. You need to do some reforms up front. But the logic of significant, let's say the proportionality of financing versus reform should be much more biased towards financing uh, given COVID. And in the future, it should be much more biased towards reform. And you have to design the reforms in a way that maybe the reforms that you do now are reforms that do not contract spending, are reforms that maybe, as you mentioned, governance, that guarantee that maybe your spending will be of a much better quality uh, today and in the future. Maybe are reforms that redesign your tax system without generating more collection, but make you more efficient and therefore generate more incentives for the private sector to come in. So you will have, you would want to have those reforms now. And maybe the ones, let's call it, that are more taxing, that are the tax reform, you have them in the future. No, I think, I mean, if you're able to do that, that would be a, a, an optimal design of program in the, in the current context for countries that were already a, a showing or experiencing important structural and financial problems before COVID. Alejandro, we just have two minutes left, but I wanted to very quickly hear a bit more about the stigma issue that you referenced, which you suggested might be keeping away potential borrowers from coming to the fund. I mean, in places like Argentina, there's been you know generations of, of resistance to the IMF, but we've also seen anti-IMF protests in 2019 in Ecuador and then last year in Costa Rica. How are you addressing so the chronic reputation challenge in some parts of Latin America for the fund at a time where the fund is, is clearly so desperately needed to get these countries back on their feet? I think that the fund has been much more uh, open first uh, uh, to discuss its programs, to have all of our documentation uh, out there and to make our case of why a policy package designed by a country in, in a given way should be supported by an IMF program and why that is good for the country. On top of that, I think we have also started focusing much more, for example, in issues that provide medium-term sustainability to our policy recommendations, such as within a budget constraint, different pockets of expenditure. For example, when you look at social expenditures, maybe, I mean, protecting and increasing social expenditures within a fiscal correction is significantly important to make that adjustment sustainable in the medium run. I think now we're getting much more involved on, on doing that, how to do that, and how to cover the most vulnerable population for those changes in policies that might affect the income of these households that, that are more uh, vulnerable. And that's also the logic of, of getting to climate change issues, to, to getting to gender issues, because you, you, we cannot look at macroeconomic sustainability only as a financial issue. It's a combination of political factors, social factors, and financial factors. And I think designing the program together with the authorities in a way that tries to incorporate all of these dimensions, I think, make it more palatable 
from the point of view of the authorities, but also uh, realistically more uh, sustainable from the point of view of the technical design. Alejandro Werner, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Benjamin, and thanks everybody for, uh, for inviting me and for this very interesting discussion. Back to you, John. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, thank you, Alejandro, as well. Uh, when we return, our experts will further discuss the region's attempts at economic recovery. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back to America's 360. I'm John Molesky. Well, you just heard from our featured guest, Alejandro Warner of the IMF. We now turn to our roundtable of Wilson experts for further discussion. I have to begin by asking Chris Sands, what's up with all this Canada love? Is Does anyone dislike Canada? <laughs> well, no, and, and I actually think that's important. One of the things that happens, especially when you're a country like Canada, is you, you put a lot of money into multilateral institutions. You hope the system will work. Uh, certainly after the last few years, the Canadians have been talking a lot about WTO reform and IMF and so on. And so while I like getting the reflected glory, even though I'm an American, of him saying nice things about Canada, I also think it's really it's really striking, especially for Americans to hear that, you know, donor countries do get a lot of support when they're consistent and when they when they step up in a crisis. Canada's done so. I'm glad they get the kudos. But it's a reminder to us that we need to do our part as well. Duncan Wood. I'd like to build on that point. I think it's very, very important. Too often in the United States, you hear this conversation about multilateral uh, financial institutions as saying they're a drain on the resources of the United States. Um, the fact is, is that in my, I would argue that the United States benefits more than anybody else from these institutions. Uh, Susan Strange used to talk about the concept of structural power. And, uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, this fits into that category where the United States, through its financial power, through its uh, uh, contributions to organizations like the IMF, maintains control over so many of the norms, rules, and decision-making procedures of the, uh, of the international system. I'd also like to, to point out something that I found fascinating from what Alejandro said, and that was that he, he talked about um, governments saving up for a rainy day. And he said, you know, it, it's pouring with rain out there. We should be spending. And I think this is a, you know, it, it, it's too easy to forget that the, the IMF is not just focused on fiscal austerity. It, it really does adopt a kind of a Keynesian approach, um, which is that you need to save your money when things are good so that when things are bad, you have money to spend. What's particularly interesting about this is that, you know, he said, this is the worst humanitarian crisis that we've had in 50 years. In other words, on a global level, this is such a huge event that this is when the IMF would say to governments, you know, crack open the rainy day fund, you've got to start spending. Yeah, great points about the historic significance of this moment. We, it's become sort of the new normal, and we, we're taking for granted how, just how unique it is. Cindy? Yeah, John, I have a slightly different point, which has to do with um, the validity of the assumptions in the IMF's, uh, you know, outlook report that just came out. Um, and I was really struck about um, the assumption that vaccine vaccination efforts were going to accelerate in Latin America. Um, as far as we can tell, they've barely begun. And they're, I mean, they've barely begun in the United States, but they have certainly barely begun in Latin America and other developing regions. And, you know, Alejandro specifically mentioned 
um, the greater than expected recovery in the third quarter of last year, but then everybody had to shut down again. And so, you know, things went back. And I would like to be as optimistic as he is that, you know, overall, there will be something over 4% uh, growth on a regional average basis. Um, but I think that that growth really depends on how quickly um, and widely, you know, uh, vaccines make it around the region. And I, I don't really see a path to um, really solid recovery until, until the, 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 you know, medical pieces are in place. Ricardo. So uh, let me just build a little bit more on Cindy's point on assumptions, because I was reassured, but not convinced by um, some of those underlying assumptions, because I do think that we're seeing some return to normal. You see that um, Chinese demand is driving a recovery in terms of commodity prices for, I think, in the case of Brazil, they've sold through 2022. I mean, you see places where you're seeing that recovery come in sharply. But going back to the question I asked about other underlying problems that predated the pandemic, we have the case of Mexico, where not only was the recovery quite slow uh, and it ongoing, uh, to Cindy's point, but you had other underlying governance and overall policy issues that were driving a major economy in the other direction already for COVID. So I, I guess my concern is that where you had these underlying fractures, there is real risk still uh, for the region. Uh, it's good that the IMF is thinking about the tools that they have available. And I think in some cases, clearly, they're going to be uh, put to effective use. But you have these other side issues or, or pre-existing issues that I think are really where I've focused. Benjamin, you in, in previous conversations on, on this topic, you've raised the specter of the so-called pre-existing conditions, which Ricardo just evoked again. The You know, disasters have a way of highlighting or exposing both strengths and weaknesses in any type of system. And I'm wondering, we'll start with Benjamin on this, but then if all of you, what are we learning new about the region in terms of our assumptions about strengths and weaknesses and flexibility and resilience and all the things that will have to contribute to any notion of a recovery? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've seen a lot of vulnerabilities. The region, as I mentioned in our conversation with Alejandro, came into this crisis with high deficits, high debt, not a lot of economic competitiveness. I think the fear is that Alejandro said they're, you know, backdating, you know, they're, they're pushing back into the programs, all the structural reform, they're pushing forward all of the income support. They want to promote a lot of social spending now, economic stimulus. All that makes total sense from an economic and humanitarian standpoint. The question is whether Latin America will ever get around to the reforms that will address what Ricardo just mentioned, and you did, the pre-existing conditions, or maybe the opposite. We're seeing indications that populists may come into power repudiating the IMF, repudiating debt, repudiating any sense of budget cuts or tax reform, pension reform, labor reform. So I think there really is a fear that the region doesn't come out of this with the kind of lessons learned, John, that you're referencing, but rather reinforces all the bad habits that left the region very vulnerable to the pandemic's economic devastation. Cindy. Sure. I think um, what's going on in Ecuador now is the perfect example of the phenomenon that Benjamin was just mentioning. Um, the candidate who polled the highest um, in last Sunday's presidential election, Andres Arauz, repudiates the IMF. Uh, last year, the IMF and uh, the government of Lenin Moreno um, concluded a $6.5 billion rescue package. $4 billion of that has already been 
um, provided to, to Ecuador. And yet there are a number of things that go along with, um, you know, with that loan that involve, as I was mentioning before, you know, increasing the value added tax, reducing the size of the state, all that kind of stuff. And Arauz says, no way. And um, his main opponent uh, on the center right, Guillermo Lasso, says, I will abide by it. But it's not sh- it's not even clear that Lasso is going to make it into the second round. So anyway, I think that uh, there is a real danger of, of pushback among politicians in the region. I want to ask about uh, fragility and how fragile any recovery is. You know, Cindy highlighted the fact that maybe the assumptions about vaccine distribution are a little bit rose-colored glasses. And we see that in the U.S. We see that around the world. Uh, variants also emerging at an alarming rate. And, and how resilient is, is this recovery and how much can it take a second body blow if these variants become the kind of problem that the worst case scenario would indicate? Okay, I, look, look, I think that I, I really do believe that, it, it, as you said, it tended to the crisis accentuated the positive and accentuated the negative. And that's, I think, what we're going to see in this recovery. You're going to see countries like, and just to take an example, uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua are examples of where we have no next to no information about the true impact and countries that are already on their back economically. Uh, and they will remain trouble spots, not just for infection, but for as, as areas where you see a continued economic contraction and the growth of humanitarian disaster, uh, that was the humanitarian disasters that were already underway. I'm afraid that what we're going to see is just as uneven recovery as we saw uneven uh, growth prior to the crisis. A final thought, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you, Alejandro mentioned that, of course, the IMF and no institution gets everything right, right? But uh, you hope that you're getting more right than you're getting wrong. And I wonder for a quick thought from each of you before we close, uh, any recommendations for the IMF? Is there an area you would indicate where maybe they could get it more right or maybe where they're making a mistake and need to uh, alter their their approach? Uh, let's let's uh, start with Benjamin. Sure. I mean, I think the IMF is right on in emphasizing the need to support social spending, particularly at a time like this, and particularly in Latin America, where it has such a problematic reputation in lots of countries. So I think that's right. I don't think the IMF has to shy away from the kind of structural reform that it's best known for. I think the region has a desperate need for improved competitiveness, um, particularly in the industrial sectors that you know are highly protected in South America, places like Brazil, Argentina, that really need um, to benefit from the kind of competitiveness you would get from, for example, labor reform and tax reform. So I wouldn't push back too far down the line those kinds of recommendations from the fund. Sands. Um, I, you know, I think I think Dr. Werner had it just about right. But maybe one of the points that you'd you'd want the IMF to make, maybe sort of maybe it just becomes a sort of message in private to some of the leaders around the world is that this time around, China, I think, will be standing ready to provide assistance if Western countries don't. And that'll come with strings as well. And if the U.S. wants to lead, if Western European countries want to push back against a, a Chinese belt and road world, it starts here. And they need to step that up financially, but also in terms of policy coordination on things like protectionism versus open trade and export-led growth. It's a broad agenda. It's not all financial, but it is a competition. And we need to recognize that. Duncan. 
Yeah, I just think I'd like to see a lot more on the question of uh, on the issue of uh, sustainability. And I don't just mean environmental sustainability. I mean, you know, financial, political, social sustainability of policies. When you look back at the history of IMF lending over the decades, you know, all too often it's been concerned with resolving the crisis at hand without thinking adequately about whether or not these kind of policies, these approaches are sustainable. And, you know, it's always all well and good for the IMF right now to say, okay, now's the time when you, you, you can spend. Um, the problem is, is that that creates a, a, a pending crisis where you have a huge debt overhang. And then all of a sudden, the IMF and others are going to come along and say, oh, you spent too much. Now you've got to tighten your belts again. We need to have much more of a, a, of a sustainable approach, which allows countries the freedom to be able to invest in their economies, to attract investment from outside without sacrificing what they see as their own political independence and social stability. Cindy Arnson. I agree with all of my brilliant colleagues. Um, I think it's really notable that Alejandro was mentioning the need for social spending and how that has to be part of the recovery, because traditionally the IMF has not been in favor of that. It's been in favor of austerity programs. But I do worry, as Duncan was saying, about the long-term sustainability about this, about the sort of debt-to-GDP ratio that countries already had going into um, this huge crisis, the pile-on now of additional international debt, and the ability of countries politically to justify repaying the IMF as opposed to, you know, cont- you know, continuing the support for social programs. So ultimately, you know, resources are finite, and um, and I am concerned about the the politics of this over the long term. And I wasn't even uh, doing this alphabetically, Ricardo, but somehow the guy with the Z in his name gets the final. I'm used to it, John. Are you traumatized from all the times in school this happened? Look, on the other hand, I knew exactly where I was going to sit in any classroom. (laughs) So, uh, so look, just to close this off, I completely agree with with uh, these observations about the need to focus on governance and sustainability. Uh, But also, I would just add, in a small set of countries, it is also a time when the IMF should exercise leverage to fix truly fundamental problems that were already clearly leading to unsustainable practices prior to this uh, event. Because what you don't want is a lifeline to unsustainable, clearly unsustainable practices. And I will be blunt, uh, what I mean is in places where spending has very little oversight, uh, where there is already massive public corruption, and frankly, where that problem with governance is feeding social crisis that is affecting the neighbors of this those critical states, uh, and where the IMF might actually have the leverage to institute some sort of lasting controls that did not uh, were not available prior to this. Well, thank you, Ricardo, and thanks, everyone. Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, Duncan, we look forward to hearing from you in our next episode of America's 360. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and at the program, I'm John Molesky. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.